Welcome to Geared for Growth. I'm your host, Mike Mortlock, Managing Director of MCG Quantity Surveyors. Today in this episode, we're talking everything valuation, specifically how a valuation background has helped Sam Powell, who's our guest today and the lead analyst at Hello House Australia, how it's helped him to analyse comparable sales with that competitive advantage that he has with that background as a valuer. We speak to him about how this due diligence or this comparable sales analysis should be done, how people typically approach that and where people are getting it wrong. He also gives us some great insights into how to calculate the potential value of a property and also gives us some cautionary advice on the value of perhaps paying a little bit extra for that A-grade quality asset because of the opportunity costs. It's an awesome interview with Sam, which I'm sure you're going to take something away from. Here's Sam. Sam Powell, thanks for joining me on Geared for Growth. Mike Whitlock, thanks for having me. It's all very very formal, which which doesn't match a man sitting in the Gold Coast with no shoes and a T-shirt on. Yes, I'm wearing pants today, not speedos. So it's, uh, it's a good time to be alive. <laughs> there's there's a few people in the property game in the Gold Coast that I'm fortunate enough to catch up with when I'm in town. And yeah, I, I'm normally the only guy wearing a suit. That's uh, just not a thing that you do. Yes, yeah, we've well, met a few times, and uh, I don't know to each their own. I spent a lot of many years wearing a you know, suit and tie and dressing up and ironing my shirt, and got to a point where. I prefer just to be comfortable. It's more so what's in my brain that's what I'm wearing is important um, in my mind. But what do you think? I completely agree. I've always said to people, the more successful I become, the worse I'm going to dress. And I'm normally wearing a suit when I say that. So obviously not successful at all. But you're right. People are interested uh, based on what's between your ears um, and especially on the audio version of this podcast where they can't even see you at all. But let's talk about your past life. So you uh, you were a, a property valuer, so you had to be prim and proper and sensible and well-dressed. Uh, now you work in the buyer's agency space where, well, you know, you're all cowboys, aren't you? Um, <laughs> but but I'm interested in in the skill set that you developed as a valuer and how that prepared you to be an analyst from a buyer's agent's point of view. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's um, a pretty in-depth, uh, I guess, process to become a property valuer itself, right? So um, you go into the – you have to do a certain degree that's approved by the Australian Property Institute and the Queensland the Bayes Registration Board. But then the um, other side of it is you need to go forward, be an assistant value for a few years, get all your tickets signed off. So it's a pretty full-on process. Um, mm. But then uh, there is definitely differences between being a valuer and then you know, also being a, a property buyer, which no doubt we'll touch on. Uh, but there's a lot of training involved to get to you know where you're at um, and you don't get your valuer's registration uh, too easily, you have to sit in front of two boards. They analyze your commercial side, your residential side, and development as well. And then they grill you. It's this really intense environment. I remember doing it myself, and I was I was sweating in my suit, maybe because I was wearing a tie at the time, <laughs> <laughs> which is just uh, it's just 
thankful that that's uh, many moons ago for you. But you've, of course, got that that rigor and that valuation methodology behind you. How, how do you think you view property now compared to today? Sorry, how do you view com- property today compared to the way that you looked at it when it was essentially as, uh, I, I guess, a contact of the bank? You are there to to certify whether what they're going to be, say, lending for um, has a certain level of risk that they're happy with, that the, the, the agreed price is within the bounds. H- how does it sort of change from that viewpoint to what you have today? Yeah, good question. Uh, so from a valuer's mindset, right, like you're going in there, I, I refer to it, you're more like a risk assessor for the, for the bank. So looking at like that way you're constantly looking at the well what is the the value of this property as today so you're looking at comparable sales evidence there there's a few barriers that are there as well for um for value so we need to use settled sales and generally within the last three to six months is that time frame uh what i've found the, the big difference in the mindset shift is especially in markets that are growing quite rapidly, those sales that you have to wait to be settled um, quite often aren't a true reflection of what that value is or that, or that heat in the market. So, um, you know, shifting into the buy side, I'm now using data to help me feel where that, um, that heat's coming from and then just constantly being in contact with those sales agents on the ground there to help me understand where that value is. And a good tip on that front is, Find those properties that are comparable that are under offer and see what they've actually um, gone under offer for. Does that make sense? Yeah. And and when it comes to the valuers having to use that settled methodology, obviously they're behind the eight ball. So when it comes to a real value, I mean, if you went to auction on a property with a valuer's report looking at maybe three or six-month-old settled properties in a hot market, you're you're going to be an underbidder by a huge margin, right? But you're you're able to say, okay, well, here's actually what's happening, and here is here is maybe not necessarily a valuation in the same sense, but here is what people are likely to be prepared to pay for something today. So, do you feel a bit less sort of hamstrung by that? Uh, yeah. So there's, um, I guess, touching on the the valuation side as well. So. Uh, the like values are it's a legal um, document and you can be sued from whether the banks um, or the, you know, the the person who's paying you for that for that long form report if you do get it wrong. So um, I try to teach people to go well. You, you got to understand, you know, you walk, walk a mile in someone's shoes, right? To understand where they're at. So they're constantly looking at it from that that mindset. And you know, whilst it's not that common generally from a bank perspective. Um, it, it has happened, and going growing up in the valuation industry in that GFC period, it, it was stuck in people's brains. Valuers were getting sued, and mm. that's um, you know, something that just sticks with people throughout their time. So uh, the the shift into it now, now we do like as a buyer, I, I'm appraising these properties. I'm not physically going in. I'm not inspecting um, them, but I am looking at. It's all the same methodology, and with data and technology. You, you actually can do a really like um, efficient job in understanding where that value sits. Uh, what I'm what I'm doing differently now is you know, a lot more agent contact, uh, but also 
you, you still have to keep in the mindset of the value to say, well, even if you get something under contract, if it's not, um, if you're paying too much for it, it's going to get knocked back on evaluation. So the, the client loses faith in your ability if you're paying too much, and that's fair enough. But also, uh, you know, it's, it's a massive stuff around process. So the accuracy for me is, is really key uh, at, this, at this point in time. And um, there's many different ways to go about it in regards to how to value it. Uh, but, yeah, it's just a skill set you develop over, over the years. How does it differ for, for you as a, as a buyer's agent looking at future price performance? Because, I mean, that's what most people that you and I would talk to uh, are in the game of, is to purchase an asset that in time will be worth asset price times one, times 10, times whatever. People are looking for that growth, whereas you're trained more in the historical, uh, these are factual values, let's see how they compare. Um, and I know valuation reports will talk about, you know, the general economy, uh, the local market, but there's not as much, it's not as much high stakes as to what will happen over time. I mean, the banks just really want to know, is it worth what the person is paying for it today? They're not typically interested in whether this is a good investment. How, how does that change the way that you look at it? Oh, well, uh, I mean, I, when I used to value property, I'd always, you try to find like with like with a lot of the on the residential side, so um, a lot of that has really helped me in the process of you know, being that buyer's agent, where uh, I've seen different market cycles come through and properties performing. So I've brought that into the analysis and the due diligence process as a as a buyer's agent. But you, you're still looking at um, from a value like you. You're not going to be looking at comparable sales that are on a main road if your property's you know in a cul-de-sac so to speak yeah. it's not comparable um so uh in regards to like looking at like locations and the growth side of things that comes from location research which is different to valuation but um the analytical brain still it works the synergies are quite good so i'm looking at that well if we're buying into a heated market and looking at days on market, looking at you know low vacancy rates, looking at these short-term metrics that are going to con- help contribute to that future growth, that's a big part that really adds fuel to the, the analysis fire in that sense. So um, it helps me understand, well, whilst all comparables might be, say, $600,000, and this property itself, it's, it's on the market, uh, I'd be looking at that, well, if they're settled, and they might even be a good tip and trick is I, I add the growth rate. So I might see a property that sold three months ago, but then I look at the data and it's showing that it's had a 3% growth rate over the last three months. So I'll then use that as a comparable, add that growth rate to help me start to formulate. It's like a thesis, basically. You're adding more and more layers of confluence to give you that confidence because as we all know, like market value is what someone's willing to pay for it on the day. You know, it's a willing buyer, willing seller, local agent transaction so i'm trying to really do everything i possibly can to build confidence in this figure which is what i call the appraisal figure and that's where you know my job is to protect people from not overpaying right and then Mm. the skill set of negotiation go hand in hand to really uh get that property at that lowest price possible so um looking at those sort of the data on that side going back to your question it does help and then really getting close into with the agent and um, 
understanding where the other offers sit. There's there's an art in that as well. Yeah, yeah, a whole nother subject, I, I assume. When it comes to your average punter, your average buyer, do, what sort of level of due diligence do they do around comparables? Is it your experience that people will come to you and say, okay, well, I've done the, let's say, the core logic um, AVM or I've done the, the what is it, the, the CMA, the comparative market analysis, or do they just kind of say, look, there's six for sale, uh, they're all about the same and this one's a little bit cheaper so it's probably good value. I'm just wondering what level of sophistication do people normally have or or do they really consider, okay, well, I really need, need to seriously look to see if I am overpaying? <laughs> well... I mean, the answer to that question is everyone's got an opinion, right? So right. some people do a really in-depth level of analysis and they're the ones that often suffer from analysis paralysis where they can't pull that trigger. Uh, at the moment in certain areas that we're buying because they are growing and then we're seeing uh, obviously Sydney's moving as well and the rest of the nation is starting to um, see a bit more heat. Uh, it's that conversation that we're having is saying, you know, whilst comparables put this at six hundred thousand dollars, what's the opportunity cost if you if you were to pay that extra five thousand dollars today and secure this property, then you know, this probably comes around once every three months. So in three months time this is going to be worth six hundred and fifteen thousand dollars as an example. And therefore six oh five would be considered cheap. So there's an education process on on that front. Mm. Uh, which which is difficult for people to get their head around. But an answering to your question is to uh, most people would look at, you know, they, they try to do the best with like with like. So um, yep. if you're looking at a four-bedroom, two-bath, comparing it in the same suburb with other four-bedroom, two-bathroom houses. Now, that can be good. The issue is is that different streets perform differently, right, in the suburb. And there's so many different aspects, even to us, like, no one house is the same in the markets that we're buying in because they are established. So there's different land sizes, the different living area sizes. And then you look at the street itself, like you're going to get more premiums in cul-de-sac locations than you would in, you know, just your, your standard um, drive-through streets. And then you go to your, um, you know, your main thoroughfares with, you know, uh, bus routes on them. And there's so many different intricacies, even on a T intersection, the, the premiums get paid on those properties that everyone wants that family unit, you know, and that's what I'm trying to drive people into investing in because that's the emotional premium you'll get on the back end, if that makes sense. Mm. Yeah, no, it does make sense. And and that's where I think people will talk about, okay, well, you want it to appeal to investors and owner occupiers alike because otherwise you're minimizing one you know, the major driver, if you're just looking at investor-specific stock, if it's something that a family wouldn't want to move into, then, yeah, you kind of think, well, it doesn't really matter. I'm not going to sell it, but it does impact the value, right? The Give for Growth Property Investing Podcast is presented by our business, MCG Quantity Surveyors. If you're an investor or a property professional looking to get the best tax depreciation deductions for yourself or your clients, please get in touch with us at mcgqs.com.au. It's our mission to help as many property investors as we can to maximise their claims and maximise their property education as well. Yeah, yeah, it, it does. And, I mean, to each their own, some in, like an investor stock for me, like 
I prefer that owner-occupier appeal is really important to me. Um, if you're getting your cash flow and that's you know making you ten bucks a week, that's five hundred bucks a year in positive cash flow. If you get the capital growth side of it right, you might take a negative cash flow, but you might be you know, having that twenty thousand plus in capital growth. You know which one would you prefer? You know it, it does depend on the individual, obviously, but um, you know, from a, a net profit basis, the capital growth will outweigh that cash flow. Uh, in in that, in that, in my opinion, obviously, uh, where people go wrong with their comparables is they they're just looking on a you know a broad base approach, and there's so many different areas. So you've got you, from the, your, your location in the in the the street is very important within that suburb, and then going into well, what's that street appeal look like? What's the size of the property? Uh, you know what aspect is is the backyard facing? North is obviously more attractive with that sun, and then they get that that premium. People often don't understand that, and then even having that mindset of all solar panels cost X, a pool costs this, um, you know, a front fence costs this sort of money, like. Those little things do add up quite quickly, and you can get that fifty thousand dollars difference. And people are looking at it, saying, "Well, I, that's a four bedroom, two bathroom that sold for five hundred and fifty. Why would I pay six hundred for this?" And when you start breaking it down, people some often come to that realization as well. It's just that how are they supposed to know? You know, like we didn't get taught this at school. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a yeah. It, it can appear like a bit of a dark art, and to make matters worse and muddy the waters, we do have these uh, automated valuation models, and, and even I've I've talked about on this podcast before TV ads of people walking around, and the agent says, "Oh, it's going to go for you know nine hundred and then they see this little ding in their app, and they go, "Oh, it's actually only worth eight seventy. You know, thank you X Y Z Bank. Um, and and those things are, I, I actually think AVMs are ex- exceptionally clever. And I think if you if you put that over the entire market, you'll probably find the variance is 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 minimal. But on a case by case basis, it, it can be so misleading. Do, do you feel how, how do you feel those AVMs fit in? Do you do you think that they are just treated like a little bit of a guide or do you think people use them as gospel and they can be a, a little bit troublesome? Uh, definitely troublesome. So I'm a big proponent of like the AVMs should not be relied upon. Uh, it, it can be one of those layers of confluence that you, know, you can use in your analysis process. And even for me as a professional buyer now is that I'm looking at those AVMs because a lot of people are out there. They're being driven by their mortgage brokers or their banks. And even you go on to search the address and an AVM will pop up and that's conditioning them to think, oh, well, this, this property is worth X. So um, I like to sort of look at that and go, well, if we're close, which don't get me wrong, the AVMs are getting a lot, lot better, right? And like eventually, <laughs> uh, you know, you hope to think that it, that it, it could um, be even more accurate for these people. But even like a twenty thousand dollar difference, that is that's too much for me. You know, like you're overspending yeah. based on some kind of figure. What I what I'd move to with those um, AVMs is 
if you're buying in locations where there's a lot of similar properties, um, issue with that is you might be on the very outskirts of town, but if they're all built in a similar age, you know, similar accommodation, that's where they start to get really accurate because they've got a lot more data set to pull pull upon. And then yeah. they also grab the recent sale of that property and then add that growth rate to that property as well um, in the back end. So mm-hmm. if you get a property that, that it might have sold two or three years ago, if you can get that growth data um, from one of the, the data sources that you can add that percentage on top, you know, that sort of definitely helps. And I found that some of those properties that yeah. have recently sold are more accurate um, you know, if it's within that three-year period of its last sale. Yeah, okay. I'm wondering when it comes to, say, revaluing uh, a property or even maybe when you're purchasing, there are sometimes that you'll see the AVM just seems to have overcooked the property. Uh, I've got a property myself where I know it's kind of like a little bit unique and not in a positive way. Um, and the AVM makes it look like a darling. Do you, are there any sort of times where you can kind of use the AVMs almost like against the bank? If you're, you know, if you're looking to say refinance at a fairly low RV LVR and you know that they're only ever going to do a desktop val, is that like a little trick? Is there something in it for people? Sounds like you've got some insider knowledge around this. I've got well. I'll give you some background, and I'll, I'll I'll ask a second question just to try and confuse you even more. I almost was a valuer at one point in time. Uh, it's a long story, and um, the one thing that I kind of learnt is is the value of the comparables, and I certainly used the opportunities uh, presented to to change the comparables. So, for example, I bought a two bedroom house with two living spaces and converted that to a three-bedroom to really force a valuer to look at different comparables. And and that kind of worked for me. Uh, I don't know if that's a, a universally valuable thing. Would you consider that a worthwhile strategy? And then also that, that AVM thing, if you can find an error in it, is it likely that a bank could refinance based on an AVM that's just overcooked somehow? Yeah, well, we've had clients in the past that uh, they – can if we buy it and the AVM is showing that, um, say as an example, it's a on the AVM it's saying nine hundred thousand. We were able to secure that property for eight hundred twenty thousand dollars. They could then refinance that day, and if it was within those high uh, like LVRs or lower LVRs, so seventy percent or below, yep. um, they're just doing a de- the bank's doing a desktop valuation, and they're going to value it more in line with what the AVM is, even though they've just purchased this property, which doesn't make really much logical sense to me from a risk perspective from the banks, but yeah, no. definitely. It's, it's That's their bad. problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, let's not worry about the banks. They'll be okay. They're still going to make profits. But uh, yeah, I'm just, I'm just wondering uh, from an insider's perspective um, and uh, with all due respect to the API and various institutes that you probably want to remain a member of are there are there any tips and tricks that a valuer can give that you can be a little bit strategic around you know those valuations and especially those revals yeah i mean there's always strategies in in everything and you, you want to try and find that competitive edge I mean, at the end of the day it's you know you're really it, it's hundreds of thousands often millions of dollars that you're you're purchasing with so you do want to get it 
right regardless. But with residential, your direct comparison is really your best best method. Um, but you've got to understand the market cycle and what the market you're buying in. And um, Obviously, if, if you can lean on people that do it every single day, then obviously you'll, you'll be at an advantageous position. But um, you know, it's not to say that those can't try it themselves. It, it is, um, yeah, it's that, that art and science to it, as we talk about. But um, you know, at the end of the day, you've got to have a go and you do the best with what you've got. If you are questioning it, then obviously reach out and have a conversation with those that, that do it every day. Yeah. And on that conversation, we, we sort of talked a little bit before about you get those hyper-analytical people that sort of say, you know, Sam, I've done this detailed analysis and I think it's worth X. And then you've got other people going, oh, you know, how do we know what it's worth? Um, what, who do you prepare to work with and, and wh- where do you see people getting it wrong, you know, from especially the, the analytical people? And, you know, we always laugh about engineers they seem to be the most anal with the data and the analysis and that sort of stuff which puts them in great stead in their careers but um is 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 that something that you think sort of people fall foul of because they their analysis is based on some some flawed notions um yeah, i wouldn't say they're flawed there's like because a lot of them do they do their research and it's um it's definitely an emotional time uh, for people uh, it just comes down to the, I mean, the property itself, right? Like you can be as analytical as possible and you can have this hard figure where you only see value up to similar to what I touched on before. You know, then it, I yeah. like to encourage people to ask that question. Well, are you willing to lose this quality asset, which uh, you know, it may not come around too often for a few thousand dollars? And um, you know, generally the answer is no, but it's you know, having... Having that mind set in place and having that, um, I guess, you can get down to the dollar. For some people, they do. They might even analyze the full replacement costs, add in the depreciation side of it, and then this is the dollar I want, not paying anything more. I'd just say go for it. Uh, see where you're at in three months, six months, 12 months. If you're still in the market, then you know, you've got to look within and think that maybe um, – yeah, if you do, you want to buy a property or or not? And the biggest yeah. thing about capital growth, I'd say, is it's better to pay a fair price for a good asset than a good price for a fair asset, because the the good asset is going to compound in growth over time, and that's what's going to help to draw down upon your portfolio and continue to add. And from a risk perspective point of view, if we are in a downturn period, which market cycles do indicate that eventually we are in downturns if you had to sell that asset you want it you want the asset that's the most desirable in that location because then you're not going to be fire selling it during that period if that makes sense yeah i think that's a a really interesting insight from someone like yourself a, a, a valuer right is that People might think, oh, well, Sam's special skill is hunting out bargains, right? He's a valuer. He knows the value. He'll be able to get properties cheaper. But you're actually kind of saying, well, forget about that. Let's talk about securing a quality asset. And sometimes it's worth paying a little bit more than what your hard and fast appraisal might be of that because you want something that's going to 
suffer less in downturns because it's a sought-after quality asset and you want something that's going to grow in value. And then there's an opportunity cost if you're not purchasing that that property, you're you're missing out on that future growth. So do you think that's sort of like um, a bit like me with a, with a tax depreciation brain, people say, what's the best property for depreciation? And I'll go then to describe something that I wouldn't want to buy and I'll say you shouldn't buy for depreciation. Do you think people are a little bit surprised by that? Uh, yes and no, I, I suppose. I mean, um, yeah, the skill set is me bringing confidence to say this is where I see value up to. Once again, I'm just a single person. Um, I've, yep. I've assessed over 15,000 properties in my time, which you know, gives me that, that sort of background. Okay. But, you know, I'm, I'm not uh, you know, right all the time. Sometimes I'm a little bit under, sometimes a little bit over. I, I prefer to be under, like in Hello House. Like our whole target is to you know, be within 2% of the purchase price every single time. And, you know, our results indicate that we're actually within negative 1% of that. that. So um, as an example, if I, you know, appraise a property at 498000 generally it sells for like 500000 So um, I'd prefer to be conservative on that front. Uh, but it's, yeah, we have those open conversations. This is where we see value too. And then we also look at the cash flow component as well um, from an investor's point of view. But yep. from an owner-occupier, then we look at it and go, well, these properties don't come up too often, you know, and we're here for you and we're happy to be on this longer journey. But, you know, it's where you see value at the end of the day and just having those open, transparent conversations to say, well, um, we need this walk-away price and we have this hard conversation now because if you're doing that, when you're halfway through a negotiation, that's where the emotion starts coming out and then people aren't making those educated decisions. So, uh, mm, yeah, yeah. To, each, to each their own. Yeah. So to finish this off, uh, Sam, if there's any advice you could get to give to people that are looking to, let's say, not use someone like yourself to purchase an investment property themselves and they're wanting to get some sort of, safe footing, some sort of foundation to give them the confidence? Obviously, we've talked about um, comparables, but what, what's your best advice to them to, to try and get as clear or as close to what that property is likely to sell for? Yeah, I'd say there's some really great free resources um, out there. So jumping on realestate.com.au, going into the sold section, finding where your property actually is. So your best comparable sales are the ones that are in the street. They might not have been gone through for the past, say, 12 months. But as I said before, you can add that growth um, data onto that. And then looking around that exact yeah. location, then I'd be looking at properties that are also on the market to see what those comparables are and targeting the ones that are saying under offer, calling those real estate agents, asking what it actually went for, what their thoughts are on this property that they're looking at buying and utilizing all those different layers of I guess, feedback data to help you come to a more confident figure. And then as an investor, running your cash flow and going, well, you know, how, what's this probably going to cost me to hold? Is that within my budget? And then just having the confidence to pull the trigger because you don't know what the real estate agent is really meaning until you engage in that fight. And that's where the, I mean, negotiation skill set really does come in as well. 
Yeah, I love that. Sam, if people are wanting to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Uh, well, I'm the, the lead analyst at Hello House. So um, hellohouse.co is our website. Um, jump on board. Um, I also run a, I'm a co-host of a property podcast called Property Pals Australia with my, with my best mate, Jared. And uh, we're, we're having these conversations every uh, once a week to try and educate people. But uh, the big, big part of what we do is obviously Hello House um, and working with Scott Agate, the founder there. Uh, we're really trying to, really trying to transform, I guess, the way people buy property and run a really open and transparent process and, and help people with the skill sets that you know Scott and I have developed over the past. Well, he's he's a bit older than me, mate. He's been doing it for thirty odd years, twenty eight years. I've only been doing it for about fifteen. So <laughs> there we go. We stop short of talking about negotiation and that the motivation behind that is that we did a negotiation special with Scott, so we didn't want to tread on the toes there and focus in on the vowel, which I think we've done pretty well. Sam, thank you very much for sharing all of those uh, insights with us today. All right, Mike, yes. Uh, I thought that, that you would have touched base a few times with uh, the negotiation expert, but, uh, yeah, happy to, happy to help out and thanks for the time. I really appreciate it. Oh, of course. Pleasure to chat. Cheers, Sam. Cheers, Mike.